Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Live from Denver 7, 10 minutes of nonstop news starts now. Friends of a young woman who was killed 26 years ago are looking for new clues in hopes of solving this cold case. Take a look. These four loyal friends from high school back in Boston gathered at a bus stop in Inglewood last night. And that's where Helene Krasinski was last seen alive. One day later, her body was discovered near Daniels Park Road. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. We want everyone to be talking about this because someone knows something. And if you're listening, if you're watching, and you know something, you can do something to really help this case. Please do so. Those classmates are meeting with the Colorado Bureau of Investigations later today to try to learn if DNA from the suspect somehow could help with this case. We'll keep you posted. Hello and welcome to episode 126 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Podcast. I've spent the past few weeks researching genealogical DNA and how it has impacted the world of cold cases and cold case investigations. I started with a case from 65 years ago, which is either the oldest cold case solved or one of them. Then I was lucky enough to have Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast back on the show to discuss a number of murders solved using DNA. And since DNA is literally part of all our lives, it only makes sense to continue to bring you stories about breakthroughs, since they basically seem to happen every week. So, on this week's show, we are going to continue the momentum by looking at a very sad case of a young woman who landed her dream internship a thousand miles from home and was looking forward to becoming the next great journalist, maybe even the next great Barbara Walters. This week, we are talking about who killed Helene Przinsky. Now, these cases are very tough to research because the victims' families are the ones that have suffered the most because they've been left in the dark for decades. And thanks to Channel 9 News, they did an exhaustive piece on Helene's case. And they look back at her early years and they state... Helene Przinsky spent the first part of her life in South Huntington on Long Island, the youngest of three children of Chester Przinsky, an army veteran and engineer, and his wife Henrietta. Her sister Janet was nine years older, while her brother Chet was 12 years older. And she was an active teenager in high school, where she participated in theater as well as music. She would go on to attend Wheaton College, where she studied journalism, and that's where she would end up seeking that radio station internship in Denver, Colorado. Now, Miss Przinsky, again, landed the internship and had been working as a news department intern at KHOW in Denver for about a month, and she was living with her grandparents in Englewood, Colorado, which was a Denver suburb. Now, I've seen different reports on where she was staying on the night that she went missing, and it's totally possible that she had multiple places that she could have gone. So I'm just going to leave that up to 
uh, reporting back in the day. And again, this case is from 1980, so it is one of those things that uh, could have just been lost in translation. And as I mentioned before, Helene was the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Chester Przinsky. Now, she lived on Porter Lane, which was in Hamilton, Massachusetts, and she was a graduate of Hamilton Regional High School. And again, while Helene's death may have seemed random at one point, there was a time where Colorado investigators believed there was a link between her slain and two previous murders in the Denver metropolitan area. As we have said so many times on this show, Helene's hometown of Hamilton, Massachusetts, were shocked over the news of the fatal stabbing. Of course they would be, because stabbings and murders are very uncommon. And unfortunately, Colorado's Douglas County Coroner John Andrews had said that the young woman died of multiple stab wounds. He said there was evidence that she had been raped. Her body was discovered Thursday morning on ranch land in Englewood, which again is a community about 30 miles from Denver. And again, this was uh, about the area where she was staying. So the article goes on to state that Przinsky had been given her first big assignment on that Monday when she covered the killing of a Secret Service agent. And KHOW News Director Mike Anthony had praised her for her work. Now, police said that she left the radio station at 5.30 p.m. in downtown Denver. Her normal routine was to board a bus for the 46-block ride to Englewood, then walk to her home, to the home of her grandparents, with whom she was staying. According to the Boston Globe, her parents, Mr. and Mr. Chester Przinsky, were on their way to Colorado as soon as they heard the news. There was a funeral mass held in the St. Paul's Church in Hamilton. And besides her parents, she left behind her brother Chester, who at that point lived in Shrewsbury, New Jersey, and Janet Johnson of Groton, Connecticut. Isa Zimmerman, who was the principal of the Hamilton Wenham Regional High School, commented to the paper, Helene was a really beautiful person. The whole high school is in a state of shock. She was such a wonderful person, natural, warm, and happy. We just cannot believe such a thing had happened. Hamilton Police Chief Robert Poole, a neighbor of the Przinsky family, said she was just about the happiest child and the sweetest little girl ever. He said the family had lived in the town for about eight years and that her father was an engineer with a Beverly firm. Now, investigators caught a break when the news hit the wires, according to Channel 9, a woman came forward with a remarkable story. She had been driving along Daniels Park Road around 10.20 the night Helene disappeared and had seen a man in the area where her body would be discovered. She was actually able to give a detailed description. A man, 20 to 30 years old, possibly Caucasian, with medium-length brown hair that went over his ears, and he was possibly wearing a mustache. Under hypnosis, the woman recalled even more details. In 1994, according to my regional newspaper, the Akron Beacon Journal, there was fresh hope when a murderer suspected of killing 
two young women in Colorado's suburbs was arrested. Robert Holes, who was a Beacon Journal staff writer, wrote an article about the rape of a local woman in the 1970s in the Akron area. Janelle Shepard, he wrote, Janelle Shepard broke down and cried when she heard the news. Someone else was dead, and Kenyon B. Tollerton again was a suspect. Aren't we so lucky to have this guy as a citizen of our fine state? Colorado authorities believe he is responsible for the death of a 14-year-old girl who was raped and stabbed 13 times. Tollerton, an Alliance native, was convicted in the slain of a Colorado woman 13 years ago, five years after he abducted Shepard from the parking lot at Chapel Hill Mall. Quote, Police say I might be his only living victim, said Shepard. Tollerton, who was a graduate, 1974 graduate, of Marlinton High School, is suspected of being a serial killer who stalked Denver's suburbs. He was arrested in Akron on April 14, 1976, while kidnapping Shepard at gunpoint. The memories of that day still haunt the Summit County woman. Quote, I see his face everywhere, Shepard said. I walk in the mall by myself and I see someone and I say, oh my God, there he is. Tollerton is being held, or at this time was being held, without bond in the Arapahoe County Jail near Denver. He was charged with first-degree murder in the slain of 14-year-old Sissy Pamela Foster, whose partially clad body was found September 1st in a remote area east of Denver. Arapahoe County Sheriff's detectives arrested Tollerton May 11th after a DNA comparison matched semen taken from Foster's body with a blood sample taken from Tollerton when he was in prison for a 1980 rape murder. Detectives in Englewood, Colorado also said Tollerton is the prime suspect in the January 16th, 1980 disappearance and murder of 21-year-old Helene Prusinski, whose body was found in a field near where she was staying with her grandparents. Now, in the Shepherd case, she stated that the guy walked up to my car and said, I had a flat tire. And I looked down and the tire wasn't flat. But when I looked up, he had a gun pointing at my head. Tollerton forced his way into the car and screamed, Step on it. He kept the gun pointed at her head as she stepped on the gas. Now, the driver's door was still open. Gerald Husky, who was an Akron machinist who had been shopping at the mall with his family, saw the 357 caliber Magnum revolver Tollerton held in his hand. Husky pulled out a toy cork pistol he had taken from one of his sons earlier in the evening and ran toward the shepherd's car. Husky jumped on the Volkswagen's running board, yelling at Shepard to stop. He pointed the toy gun at Tollerton, screaming, Police! Get out of the car! Shepard stopped the Volkswagen and actually got out. Husky dragged Tollerton from the car. This is, this is a great story because this is somebody going above and beyond being a citizen. Tollerton eventually was arrested at the scene 
and he pleaded guilty to kidnapping and felonious assault, was eventually sentenced to 2 to 15 years in the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield. Well, two months later, Tollerton was released from prison after being granted shock probation. Tollerton returned to Alliance, where he found work and was supervised by the Summit County Probation Department. Tollerton was allowed to move to Colorado in March 1979, when his probation was to be supervised by mail and telephone, according to probation department memos. Five years passed before Shepard saw Tollerton again. This time it was in a courtroom in Colorado. Tollerton was on trial for killing Donna U. Wall, a 22-year-old bartender from Denver's, the Denver suburb of Englewood. Now, Tollerton was arrested July 28, 1981, after an Arapahoe County Sheriff's deputy on routine patrol saw Tollerton walking in a field with a flashlight about 1.30 a.m. When the deputy asked him what he was doing, he said, I'd just like to walk around the area. Uh, he left the deputy who questioned him and uh, noted the, the license plate on Tollerton's car. The deputy then searched the field and made it a grisly discovery, and that was Waugh's dis- decomposed body. She had been dead for about a week. A short time later, when police stopped Tollerton's car in nearby Aurora, Colorado, he admitted seeing the body in the field. When he was asked why he didn't mention it to the deputy who had interviewed him in the field, Tollerton said, quote, I think I need a lawyer. Now that is according to doc- documents from the court. Investigators found that Tollerton had stalked Waugh, dubbing her the, quote, shower girl, in conversations with friends, according to another court affidavit. Tollerton, the affidavit alleged, had watched Wow shower in her apartment, which was near his own apartment. On February 10, 1991, after he served 10 years in prison on murder and federal gun convictions, he was released from prison and put on probation for six months. Shepard said she heard that Tollerton had been back in Northeast Ohio since then to visit his family in Alliance. Quote, it makes me angry that they released this guy, she said. Once he was off parole, he was free to go anywhere. And as prime as a suspect as this guy must have been, it turns out it wasn't him. So like all the previous attempts to find the killer... This one failed as well. Unfortunately for the family, the case went cold, and it stayed cold until 1999, when authorities announced they would attempt to use the latest DNA technology and revisit the unsolved murder of Helene Pruszynski. Investigators from the Douglas County Sheriff's Department, Inglewood Police Department, and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation had joined together to reopen the case, mind you, again, this is 1999, quote-unquote, using cutting-edge DNA technology. As you all know, with the theme of these past few weeks, technology in the world of DNA has drastically improved since 1999, and even in the past five years. But in the press release, they said, quote, with the advancements in technology, We're going to try some things we couldn't do 19 years ago, Englewood detective Clay Forrington said. Again, her body was found after a short but intensive search. 
It was a brutal discovery because her hands were found behind her back and she had been raped and stabbed 19 times. Hair and semen evidence had been collected from the scene. Apparently, it was so sparse that DNA tests were inconclusive. However, updates in testing coupled with the use of DNA databases may find a match among thousands of convicted rapists, and that was according to Douglas Sheriff's Sergeant Attila Dennis. Quote, they are sort of doing detective work in reverse, taking people who were already convicted and then trying to connect them to the evidence, according to Dennis. Investigators said they are trying to connect Przinsky's killing to three high-profile murders around the same time. They are checking for a connection to Kenyon Tollerton, a computer programmer who was convicted of murdering Donna Waugh of Englewood in 1980. And again, authorities used DNA evidence to link Tollerton, whom police described as a, quote, serial killer of petite white females. That is a description that you want to have on your gravestone. He was convicted of the killing of Sissy Foster, who was 14, and she was found in a field near Byers in 1993. He was sentenced to life without parole plus 48 years after pleading guilty to the murder. Dennis did decline to identify the other murder cases the task force is reviewing. Quote, there wasn't much detectives could do with DNA evidence they collected at the time. You got to hand it to them, though. How could they have fathomed the use of this evidence in the future? And again, investigators preserved male DNA recovered from the scene, but no analysis was done immediately, according to the arrest affidavit. In 1999, a DNA profile was developed and uploaded to a criminal database, but no potential suspects were identified then or over the years as more people were added to it. But that didn't stop the pursuit of the killer. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, Best Fiends. It's really great to be getting back to normal this summer. I know I'll be heading to the movies and hitting the beach. And while at the beach, I may give my brain a refreshment by opening Best Fiends on my phone. True crime calls for a beach break now and then, and that's when I turn to Best Fiends. Solving puzzles is kind of my thing, and Best Fiends offers me a new challenge every day. It's way more fun than the other matching puzzle games out there. It's also one of those games that makes 30 minutes feel like 30 seconds. And guess what? It's totally free to download. One of the coolest parts about Best Fiends is whenever I open the game, there's something new going on every time. Whether it's a new challenge, new levels, or a fun monthly event. And I am really flying through these levels, which is an example that pretty much anybody can play. I find that moving through these puzzles and these different levels is a great experience. And it really does refresh my brain. Collecting all those different characters is just another reason that I turn to Best Fiends for a challenge. So if you're tired of the same old puzzle games, I believe this game is for you. And I actually have a favorite character, and he's aptly named Temper, because he fits my personality. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this game. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. 
That's friends without the R, best fiends. In fact, the case was re-examined again in 2000, 2005, 2010, and 2013. This is a good example of really dogged police work. This is a police force that clearly wanted this case solved. But despite their best efforts, the follow-up investigation didn't go anywhere. The investigation did discover eight women who may have been related to the killer, but despite the best attempts at locating anybody else connected to these women, they weren't able to do so. So fast forward to 2019, and things really took off. Investigators used DNA recovered at the crime scene and focused first on finding relatives, which included a woman in Georgia. Now, this is where the search eventually led them to Clanton. The Douglas County Sheriff's Office says deputies arrested a suspect in a nearly 40-year-old murder case. According to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, 21-year-old Helene Pruszynski was found stabbed to death in a field back in January 1980. Investigators believe she was abducted from the bus stop near Union Avenue. Now the Douglas County Sheriff and District Attorney are holding a press conference later this morning. That's when we expect to learn more about the arrest. The press conference is scheduled at 11 a.m. Stay with CBS Denver for more details on this developing story. Katie Johnston, CBSDenver.com. Who changed his name in Florida two years after Helene Przinsky's murder. And according to court documents, he was originally known as Curtis Allen White. I mention this almost every time, but it is amazing how many of these killers have just killer type of names. Curtis Allen White, I mean... Just like he was born to be a bastard. Anyway, Clanton was arrested on December 11th, 2019, after Douglas County Sheriff's investigators quote-unquote surreptitiously collected a beer mug from a bar that he had visited and had it tested for DNA. Now, White had been sentenced to 30 years behind bars in Arkansas after pleading guilty to first-degree rape in 1975. In that case, authorities said he enters, entered a woman's home on the pretext of using her phone and then forced her into the, a bedroom at knife point and then assaulted her. But the good old justice system let him serve only four years, and he was out on parole. And after the murder, Clanton was married at least twice. And like a lot of crazy people, he decided to head to Florida for a fresh start. His first marriage was to an old girlfriend from Arkansas, whom he wed in 1980. Their loving marriage lasted a whopping 30 days. By 1982, he had bounced to Florida again, where he changed his name. And this is where he got married and divorced a second time and was arrested on a domestic violence charge in 1998. Now, I'm going to read directly from the Channel 9's story about Helene's murder. Quote, Almost immediately, they knew the woman had been brutalized, sexually assaulted, and stabbed to death. Her hands were bound behind her back with nylon straps. Her identity was settled nearly as quickly, and Arapahoe County's sheriff deputy, who worked part-time at KHOW, arrived at the scene. He knew he was staring at the body of Helene Przinsky. 
Detectives worked the scene carefully, looking for evidence in the dirt along the edge of the two-lane road. They noticed tracks left by a vehicle and footprints, two sets of them in, in the snow leading out into the field. One set was apparently from cowboy boots. Those are the only footprints that were turned. They gathered everything they could that might help them figure out who did such a terrible thing, and they basically found a empty milk carton, a piece of bread, an old can. They took pictures and made plaster casts of the tire tracks as well as the footprints, which again is pretty typical in 1980. Now, I mentioned earlier in this episode about the composite sketch. The artist drew a quote-unquote remarkably realistic composite of the possible suspect. This is where things get sad after 40 years of a case being unsolved. Almost every single one of her immediate family members had died in the four decades since her murder. Miss uh, Przinsky's older sister, I mentioned, was Janet Johnson. And she actually received a phone call. And a prosecutor said homicide investigators had made a breakthrough thanks to advances in genetic genealogy and dogged police work. Investigators say they were able to put together an extensive family tree of potential suspects using semen that was recovered from the body of Helene and working with forensic genealogists at, quote, the United Data Connect and websites like Ancestry.com and GEDmatch.com. The DNA, again, had been preserved at the time of the murder, but, of course, that technology did not exist. They did run it through the database in 1999, you know, via the FBI, but again, nothing was successful. They did try to get DNA off that milk carton that I mentioned they picked up at the crime scene, but that was not successful. And the next time, they wouldn't be so unlucky. The investigators actually followed Mr. Clanton to a local bar where they said they were able to get his DNA from a beer mug that he was drinking from. And ding, 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 we have a winner. Clanton, a.k.a. Curtis Allen White, DNA matched the DNA profile of Miss Przinsky's killer. So Mr. Clanton was charged with first-degree murder and second-degree kidnapping. And this was all according to the affidavit. And they couldn't charge him with sexual assault because the statute of limitations had expired, unfortunately. Of course, that would have been very nice, but better to get him on murder charges anyway. One of the interesting things in these cases is it's fun to like kind of compare the composite sketches with the suspects after they've been arrested. Sometimes they're really <laughs> nothing like what they were drawn as, and sometimes they're amazingly similar. I look at the Molly Bish case as a good example recently when they came up with a suspected killer of Molly Bish, and in this case, the sketch was, like I said before, remarkably similar to that of Curtis Allen White. White actually worked as a landscaper when he was in Colorado. So landscaping is one of those professions similar to roofing where you let strangers in your yard and they can pick up on all of your routines. I know the same can be said about a number of outdoor professions, but these two in particular allow strangers an up-close look at your home and really anybody who lives in your neighborhood. And I'm not trying to say that everyone in those industries are bad. I'm just saying 
that they don't do as many background checks, and they can basically hire people off the street for some of the work. Now, the Douglas County Sheriff, Tony G. Spurlock, said at the news conference announcing the arrest that more than 22 detectives spent the last year pursuing the case, which was a joint investigation with state, local, and federal law enforcement partners, as well as the group Metro Denver Crime Stoppers. Now, again, at the time of the killing, Clanton was on parole from that Arkansas... I mean, what the hell is this guy doing free? I mean, okay, so he's on parole for the Arkansas rape, and he had been released to live in the suburban Denver home of a former counselor who offered to help him. I mean, I know you don't want to always look back and go, things could have been better, but hello, people. He raped the woman... Didn't do that much time. I don't think there was much remorse. It's a little dangerous and a little stupid, in my opinion, to let somebody out and then let them travel to another state where they basically are anonymous. And that's just really unacceptable, in my opinion. Now, again, this is just my opinion, but Curtis Allen White was a predator and the fact that they let him out of jail just after only four years of his 15-year sentence, it's just, or 30 years, I mean, it just, it's nuts. I mean, it's nuts. And I know Arkansas has had their fair share of interesting cases. Uh, just look at the West of Memphis case, um, Mina Airport. I suggest you guys listen to Boys on the Tracks episode from the guys at the True Crime Garage podcast because that is one of the best four-part series on the state of Arkansas and how corrupt it was back in the 1980s and 1990s. And you will just be amazed. So Clanton is arrested and charged with murder or accused of murder, and he denies any responsibility. As he's being extradited to Colorado, on the drive to the airport, he decided to talk. And I'm going to read this to you because it's an interesting perspective, and it's just kind of disturbing in a lot of ways. And so again, this is the confession to Helene's murder while riding to the airport. Quote, Okay, Barilla said, so when we contacted you the other day, when we were interviewing you about uh, your time in Colorado, did you have an idea what we were talking to you about? Yes, Clanton replied. Okay, and what did you think that was about? About murder, Clanton said. Okay, why did you think we were talking about murder? Did anybody, did, did either of the cops mention the word murder to you? No, Clanton said faintly. No, Barilla replied. Okay, so why did you think this was about murder? Because I knew it was going to come up and get me one day, Clanton said. Why was it going to come up and get you? Did you murder someone? Because I did it, Clanton said. Okay, you did what, Barella asked. I killed the girl they're accusing me of killing, Clanton coldly replied. Now, I want to go ahead and play the recording of the confession 
that Clanton gave to the investigators on the airplane as he was being extradited back to Denver. So the next five minutes are pretty interesting. The first conversation that I just quoted was in the car. Now this is now in the plane where he gets a little bit more detailed. So hang in there for five minutes if you want to skip the, I don't know, not so pretty parts, you can do so. Again, it's only about five minutes long, and then the episode will be. Conc- I will conclude the episode after that. So, take a listen. Okay, we're on record. It's uh, 12:02. Uh, we are in Florida, driving to the airport. In the car with me is Sergeant Billy Townsend, with uh, Union County Sheriff's Office. Also in the car with me is Jim Clanton. Uh, Jim, what's your date of birth? 32157 or yeah, 21058, whichever one you want. And my name is Lieutenant Tommy Barella. It is uh, December 13th. And uh, while we're driving the airport, Jim uh, advised me he'd like to talk to me about uh, the crimes that he's being accused of uh, from the other day when he uh, did ask for an attorney. So I'm going to read him his Miranda rights again. Um, and then uh, we'll uh, have a little conversation. So, uh, Jim, you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand that right? Yes. Anything you say or do can and will be used against you in a court of law. Do you understand that right? Yes. You have the right to talk to a lawyer and have him present with you while you are being questioned. Do you understand that right? Yes. If you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you before any questioning if you wish. Do you understand that right? Yes. You can decide at any time to exercise these rights and not answer any questions to make any statements. Do you understand that right? Yes. Okay. And this this goes on, I mean, whether we're in Florida, whether we're in the air, or whether we're in Colorado, um, you know, those rights count. And if you decide you want to stop talking, you have that right. You understand that? Understand. All right. Do you understand each of these rights as I have explained them to you? Yes. Having these rights in mind, do you wish to talk to me now? Yes. Okay. So uh, why don't you go ahead and... Uh, you know, I'll let you start, and then I'll just ask you questions. Or would you rather me ask you questions? How would you like ask to do this? Ask questions. So I ain't got long ago. I'm sure my memory's not as going to be totally accurate. Okay. So uh, when we contacted you the other day, and uh, we were interviewing you about uh, uh, your time in Colorado, did you have an idea of what we were talking to you about? Yes. Okay. And uh, what did you think that was about? About murder. Okay, why why did you think we were, talk, we were talking about murder? Did anybody, did any of the cops mention the word murder to you or? Um, no. no? Okay, so why did you think it was about murder? Because I knew that was going to come up and get me one day. Why, why was it going to come up and get you? Did you murder because someone? I did it. Okay, you did what? I killed the girl there accusing me of killing. Okay, so you do recognize the girl that was in that picture? Yes. Okay, can you tell me... Uh, what happened? Like, where did you did, did you know her? No. Okay. Where did you meet her at? Uh, saw her get off an RTD bus, and I went and picked her up, put her in my car. I don't really know where I drove to, but it ended up in Daniel's Park. Okay, did you, uh, 
Did she get in your car willingly? No. Okay, how did you how did you get her into the car? I put my arm around her and had a knife in my hand and showed it to her. Did she say anything? She said, I'll go. Okay. Had you ever seen her before? No. Okay, so you weren't sitting there watching that bus stop for days or anything? Did uh did you guys did you go straight to Daniels Park? Did you go anywhere else? Did you go out to eat? Did you No, we I can't remember where we went first. It was somewhere and I don't even remember the roads that well. Around Quebec and Arapahoe or somewhere in there. That's where the rape occurred. Okay, and when you did you do it in the vehicle? No. Did you do it where'd you do it at? In a little wooden shed that was on that road that I was on. Okay. Um what uh can you describe what happened when, when you raped her? I just raped her. Okay. Uh did she fight you? Did she no. scream? Okay. Um, did she ask if you were going to let her go or anything like that? Yes. Okay. And what did you tell her? Told her I was. Okay. And then, uh, what car were you in? That green station wagon I was telling you about. Alright, so it wasn't a green station wagon? Uh, did you have sex in that car at all? No. Okay. Uh, so you get done uh, raping her uh, in that um, woodshed. You doing alright, man? remembering this stuff oh I know and uh, you know like I said we we uh, you know if you want to stop we can stop if you want to you know keep going we'll keep going and um, you know we're gonna be together for a little bit so we got time and yeah, let's take a break you want to take a break okay uh, it is 1207 and uh, we're gonna take a break Clanton would go on to plead guilty to first-degree murder in February of that year now, in a brutal interview with detectives, he admitted to the killing, telling them he abducted Pruszynski at knife point, intending to rape her, then bound her hands behind her back and drove her to the field where her body was found. Quote, Mr. Clanton describes her as staying as friendly as she could, asking him not to hurt her. And this was according to Senior Deputy District Attorney Chris Wilcox. This is all in the court papers. Clanton had instructed Pruszynski to get on her knees, telling her she could walk home even as he prepared to kill her. How he approached her after she got off the bus, he said, I told her I had a knife, Clanton said. Quote, she says, I see it. And I said, well, let's go. And she said, okay, I'll go. She wasn't going to flight. I just opened the passenger door, told her to get in and... I went around and got in the car and took whatever I was going to use to tie her hands with, and we went somewhere. And that's basically when he raped her. She asked me what I was doing, and I told her I was kidnapping her for money. And she said, well, my parents don't have any money and stuff like that. I didn't tell her what I was really doing until we got into the woodshed. And he says that we got out of the vehicle and walked through the field crossed the fence and walked, oh, geez, told her to get down on her knees and said, <clears throat> I'm going to have to walk home from here. 
So don't get up until after I leave. And again, he's not really going to let her leave. Went on to say that, and as has happened with me on several occasions for some reason or another, I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. I just kind of step out of myself and watch myself do that. And this is according to the newspaper and Channel 9 News. By that, he meant plunging a knife into Helene's back nine times. The work necessary to bring the January 16th, 1980 murder of Helene Przinsky to a close took a lot of work. And it was the work of 100 individuals from more than two dozen agencies. And Spurlock said investigators were looking into whether Clanton or Curtis Allen White could have been responsible for other sexual assaults reported in the Inglewood area around the time she was killed. Douglas County Judge Teresa Slade sentenced James Curtis Slanton, 63, during an emotional nearly three-hour hearing in which more than a dozen people testified about the lasting impact of the killing over the past four decades. Quote, it never got any easier, Janet Johnson, Przinsky's sister, told the judge through tears, describing her sister as a warm, kind, bright, and friendly. Brzezinski's murder on January 16, 1980, devastated the family forever, Johnson said. It was as if someone reached out and reached in and tore our hearts out. As she was describing how she'd cry herself to sleep at night, wondering how her parents who have since died, were coping with their grief. Prusinski moved to Colorado weeks before she was killed in order to pursue that internship we talked about at KHOW. And again, she'd ride the bus to and from work, and thus all she did was walk a few blocks each evening. And this is where Clanton made his move. And... This case is another tragic example of technology not being where it needed to be to stop a killer because hopefully we find out if Clanton was involved with any other sexual offenses or murders. I mean, let's just hope that he wasn't. But, you know, most people who do these types of things, unfortunately, they're not one and dones. And again, it's really not hard to imagine this guy committing crimes across the southwest in florida i mean if he's willing to kill a girl he pulled off the street then who knows what else he could have done but luckily we have law enforcement that is willing to spend the extra money and really go that extra step to bring a type of closure for the families and the communities that they represent again the cases that i've covered this august all had a similar theme and that is a group of lawmen and women 
coming together and closing some of the country's coldest cases. Before you guys leave the episode, I am going to play the press conference, the actual announcement of the arrest of Curtis Allen White for the murder of Helene Prasinski. And it's about 20 minutes, and it will start playing after the outro and the music ends. So stick with the show for a few extra minutes, and the press conference will be there for you to listen. Enjoy. So thank you guys so much for listening this week. It's always a pleasure. And thank you to Best Fiends for sponsoring this week's show. Download their app today in the Apple App Store or Google Play. As all of you know by now, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday wherever you get your favorite podcasts. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes. You can find me on PayPal or you can contribute to the show simply by using the Venmo app on your smartphone. Show donations can be sent to at bill-huffman-3. Now again, any contribution really does help keep these slow burn podcasts running. You can also leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your shows because that helps keep the shows that I do and the cases I cover in the spotlight. And if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered or whatever shows I have coming down the pipeline, check me out on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And again, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, as always, be healthy and stay safe. And uh, thank you all for uh, being here. This is a... um uh, when I was thinking about it this morning and I just got off the phone with uh, um, Helene's sister, it was kind of one of those uh, bittersweet uh, moments because this has been a long time, um, almost 40 years. January 16 will be the 40th anniversary of Helene Przinsky's, um murder. And so uh, first I want to start by thanking the people uh, that are up here, some people up that are up here that helped make this um, uh, make this possible. Uh, the Douglas County Sheriff's Office Investigations Unit and our cold case review team uh, have been working on this for um, well over a year, and and I'm going to go into a little bit more about that in a second. But um, Detective Shannon Jensen is the lead detective on the case. Um, Valerie Garcia is, is the, uh, we call it the supervisor of the cold case review team. This is a, a volunteer group that uh, works with the cold case team uh, to help them um, uh, with the cases. And then Audrey Sipkin, Sipkins from the uh, Colorado Bureau of Investigation has been a key player with us, helping us uh, with this when we were working with uh, the DNA. Uh, I also want to thank the 22 detectives. I'm not going to give you all their names. Some of them are in this room. But we deployed 22 detectives uh, around the state and into Florida and other locations to help us get information that brought us uh, to the arrest. So to those detectives who worked uh, actually since Thanksgiving through Thanksgiving today, uh, thank you for uh, um, giving up your life and your family's time to do this. Um, 
the Union County Sheriff, Sheriff Whitehead, has been very helpful to us, and that's where the arrest was made. Florida Department of Law Enforcement assisted us a great deal. Obviously, the District Attorney's Office, and they're going to talk about it. Uh, Colorado Bureau of Investigations, um, SAC Dean Phillips and the BAU unit at Quantico helped us a great deal from the, uh, the FBI. And then behind us is the United Data Connect, which is Mitch Morrissey and Joan Bussey, uh, who helped us out a great deal as well. And then, of course, Colorado State Patrol, uh, Chief Matt Packard helped us uh, a lot. And then uh, Crime Stoppers, uh, Michael Mills, who's also behind me here to my left, uh, helped us out as well. I think it's important that we talk about uh, the victim, uh, Helene Przinsky. And I talked uh, again to her sister um, just a few moments ago to let her know that we'll be doing this uh, press conference. And the key thing about her is, is that here's a 21-year-old girl who uh, left college in a small little town in Massachusetts um, to come to Colorado to internship at uh, KHOW Radio and was only here two weeks and was abducted uh, at some time coming home from work, um, raped and murdered in Douglas County and, uh, and left. This is a young girl who was just starting her life, came to Colorado to have an opportunity to make a difference. She wanted to be in journalism. She wanted to be a part of a bigger story. Uh, she was involved in her choir uh, at home and from all accounts and everyone that had anything to say about her it was just a wonderful, decent, nice young lady. And it's important that we talk about her as much as we can. Obviously, we understand that the suspect that we have in custody um, is going to get some attention. But the key is that we remember and we remain that we have Helene in our thoughts and prayers and her family. Uh, I think you see there's a photograph up there possibly right now that has her brother Chester, who is deceased. Um, her grandmother, Julia, who's also deceased. Um, and then her sister, Janet, who is the only one in the immediate family that's still alive. And the other lady is her grandmother, Julia. Um, that's her life. And because it had taken so long, so many people had gone and not, not don't get to have the opportunity to hear this, um, that we've made an arrest. I will tell you that um, we started this investigation, uh, obviously, in, in January 16, 1980. Colorado Bureau of Investigations, Douglas County Sheriff's Office started the investigation, and within a year, uh, it went cold. And there wasn't really a lot of work that went on it periodically, but not until about 1998, when uh, we reopened the case, started to work on it, and developed a few more leads, but then again, it went cold. And 2013, I started a cold case review team and a cold case unit along with George Brockler and his uh, agency did the same thing. He's gonna talk a little bit about that. And we really started focusing on cold cases and started focusing on things that we could use to help us solve these. And in many of the cases, it's DNA, it's forensic, it's technology, the newest trending technology. And uh, that's how we got ourselves here today. I'm not gonna go into great detail about that, but I can tell you that the people that are behind me and beside me played a major role. Um, uh, Chief uh, Steve Johnson, who is the commander of the overall command,
and a lot of work, and we had some really, really good um, luck, if you will. And then we had some great evidence and original evidence that was taken in uh, by the CBI and by our office. And here we are today where we have an individual who is in custody. Um, and we're going to tell you just a little bit more about him. Um, he is in our jail right now. He was extradited this weekend to uh, Douglas County. And we are in the process of getting him prepared for court, which will happen later on this afternoon. I'm told about 1.30. And at this point, I'm going to turn it over to George Brockler to talk a little bit about uh, the prosecution, and then we'll answer any questions. One month shy of uh, 40 years ago, a 21-year-old girl was kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered. And to put in perspective how long ago that was before we can get to this first formal step of achieving justice on her behalf is to know that back then the President of the United States was Jimmy Carter. Empire Strikes Back hadn't even come out in the movie theaters yet. Both prosecutors assigned to our cold case unit weren't even alive back when this crime was committed. Heck, even Mitch Morrissey and Sheriff Spurlock were a mere 30 years old. <laughs> I'm not good at math, but it felt like that was true. Uh, but today, if you see us smiling up here, don't take that satisfaction as the job is finished or a job well done. We haven't won the Super Bowl, but we're now on the field inside the stadium and we're able to work towards that goal. One of the things that you have to understand as we continue to have conversations about this case and the great work that was done is that this guy, no matter what is revealed in the affidavit that I think is unsuppressed now, no matter what is revealed in open court later today, this guy is presumed innocent and he has to remain presumed innocent for this system to work. Now, one of the things that I think the public should take away from this is twofold. We don't rest on murder cases. It may seem like justice has been too long delayed, but it isn't gonna be denied in this case. The other thing that I think that the public ought to take away from this is that this is the true team effort. There is no single person, there is no single piece of technology, no single fact that resulted in this day and everything that transpires afterwards. This was a concerted effort by people who were interested in getting to justice on a case that had sat on a shelf because we didn't have anything to do with it for the longest time. I can't thank enough the efforts of uh, Mitch Morrissey and his company, United Data Connect. Um, without them, I don't think we're here. Shannon Jensen, who stands to my left, there's no way we get here just on technology. If it hadn't been dogged old school um, police work done by Detective Jensen, we wouldn't be here today. The cold case unit that Sheriff Spurlock stood up the same year that we stood ours up, without those efforts, we wouldn't be standing here today. This is a true team effort. Um, as we move forward, though, I think some of the procedural questions that folks will have or should have are things that we can address right now. So this is a person we've already referred charges on. We've already filed charges. And those charges include 
various theories of first degree murder. There's after deliberation with intent. There's felony murder predicated on an underlying crime of robbery. There's felony murder predicated on an underlying crime of kidnapping and felony murder predicated on an underlying crime of sexual assault and then a standalone charge of kidnapping. Now there's some things you need to know about that. Questions might be asked, well, why didn't you charge the underlying robbery or the underlying sexual assault? It's because the statute of limitations has run on those charges. Another question that would be asked is, well, what's the penalty for murder? Well, today that penalty would be life without parole. But back in squishy, soft, we love bad guy 1980s, that penalty is parole eligibility after a mere 20 years if convicted of first degree murder. So we're standing here today with these five charges that this guy's presumed innocent of that we're moving forward on in this case. Uh, this afternoon at 1.30, he will be formally advised in front of, I believe, Judge Slade in Division One. It's Division One, isn't it? Division One. Uh, at that time, he'll have already had the appointment of counsel. I presume it'll be the public defender's office or some sort of alternate defense counsel. And then we'll get a date after this to make some decisions about the next phase, which should include preliminary hearing. After that, an arraignment. And then subsequent to that, either some sort of entry of a plea or a setting of motions hearing and a trial. It is my intention that this case, having sat for 40 years until this day, we are going to move forward with deliberation and with appropriate due diligence and haste to get to justice in this case for our young 21-year-old victim. Uh, I want to thank the guys on my team, too, that helped put this together, the victim advocates that have worked so closely with the victim advocates out of the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. I can tell you, having spoken uh, with the victim's mother in this case, um, the emotions are as raw in some ways as they were 40 years ago. I think this is the kind of phone call that at some point you don't expect to get. And you know that's always hanging out there, but um, to hear that sound in mom's voice was something special. And my hope is we can continue to move forward to get whatever ultimate closure a system like this can provide after a sweet, innocent 21-year-old girl has been ripped from it. Uh, regardless of that being 40 years ago. I'm happy to answer any other questions that, oh, uh, you know what? I forgot to give another important shout out. Crime Stoppers. That's the real deal right there. This doesn't get done without Crime Stoppers and Mr. Mills. Their investment of effort and resources into this is the reason that we're standing here. I'm a huge, huge fan of Crime Stoppers. If you guys have any other questions though, uh, Sheriff, was there uh, something else? Happy to answer questions or, uh, yeah, yes, sir. Now, I'm, not, I'm not even the one directing this. There's someone who's supposed to be in charge that actually knows stuff. You're in that, charge. And we're gonna are you it. sure? Are you okay with that? No, you're fine. Uh, yes, sir. At the time of Ms. Brzezinski's disappearance in Englewood, there were a number of sexual assault cases that were unsolved. Is Mr. Uh, your suspect, is he suspected in those cases as well? We've investigated a number of issues regarding that. That's still an ongoing investigation. Also, keeping in mind that almost all of those would have statute limitations that would uh, apply to it uh, as well. Um, but we are working closely with the uh, Inglewood Police Department uh, just to make sure that we have all of our uh, issues covered. Sheriff, can you talk about the aha moment? When we received a call through uh, Mitch's office 
Um, Shannon got the call and we were like, this is, this is the most likely individual. Um, when we were able to get the call from CBI and said, this is your guy, um, that was a, again, it was one of those kinds of feelings because you've been working so long and so hard to get something and now all of a sudden here is the suspect. Um, it was excitement, um, some relief, but also, um, you know, it was like, okay, n now we know we have to, n n there's a next step. And, and part of that is, uh, you know, going through all the process that we have right now, but we were very excited and very pleased to partner with these folks and to get that particular information. What was a big break in the case that led you to him? Uh, well, we had been working uh, with uh, Mitch Morrissey's company to help us connect uh, DNA and working in hand in hand with Colorado Bureau of Investigations. And uh, there was a significant amount of evidence that, as I said, was maintained and properly cared for over the last 40 years uh, at the crime scene. And that evidence was then later uh, turned uh, to pointing the finger at our suspect. Can, can I say one other thing about that too? Um, there's DNA that's part of this case, a big part of this case, but don't misunderstand that it's like, hey, we just entered DNA into some voodoo database and out popped this guy. It wasn't like that. It was a combination of DNA existing, technology that was available, but then the dogged police work that was done by uh, Detective Jensen, as well as uh, Mitch's company that helped put the pieces together for us to find that missing piece of evidence to tie it all together, and that's how it happened. Let me correct one other thing, a misstatement. You might have seen John Kellner, who's um, the head of our cold case unit, lean in to tell me. I said it was mom that I spoke to, it was sister. Forgive me for that. You, I think you guys probably picked up on that before I did. Uh, one other thing about the sexual assaults that may have taken place out there, obviously we don't know if they're related to this guy, but despite the statute of limitations running, Look, to the extent that we're able to get to some sort of closure for people, if uh, they were victims of those crimes, and I hope Englewood, I presume they are taking a look at this, I'd like to know one way or the other, whether or not it's prosecutable or not. I think the other piece to uh, keep in mind as this guy's identity becomes put out there through you folks, is that if there's anybody here in the state of Colorado uh, or anywhere that knew this guy at about that time, had contact with him, uh, or anything about him at about the time of this crime, uh, we'd sure love to know. And I want to give out the sheriff's personal cell for that. <laughs> Thanks, George. No, I'm kidding. It's not the personal cell, but there's probably somebody to contact, and it's not me. Yes, uh, you can contact the Douglas County Sheriff's Office on our um, uh, non-emergency line, 303-660-7505. George, can you talk about the difficulty, perhaps, in prosecuting these types of cases and what you anticipate the public defender to, to maybe say? Hard to know what the defense will do in this case, hard to speculate. Um, knowing the evidence that's available in this case, I felt comfortable, extremely comfortable moving forward with these charges in this manner. Um, but again, you know, we have a system that's set up to provide the maximum amount of due process for someone accused of crimes, both small and large, recent and old. And this process will ferret that out. But uh, I'm very confident with the steps that we've taken in the direction that we're heading. And more will be revealed, obviously, through either the affidavit, if you already have it, if it's been unsuppressed, and then in, in open court as we proceed. Yes, sir. With respect to uh, what you said regarding the other police work, uh, would you say that this case, uh, as, or the technology has finally caught up with this case? You had the evidence back when it happened. 
almost 40 years ago, but you didn't have the technology. Would you say that over time, the technology finally caught up, with, which allowed you guys to have this rating? I would. I would say the technology was an undeniable uh, part of this case. But I don't want the public to think that, hey, we just came up with this new scientific method and absent the hard work of human beings actually doing old school police work and digging around, that this would have just solved itself. That's not true. You know, cases like this give me hope for the future. As we continue to make these technological advances, uh, there are crimes yet unsolved today that I have great optimism because of cases like this that we're going to end up solving. And I think the public ought to feel good about that. And I think murderers ought to be scared to death of it. Can you tell us anything about the moment Clanton was arrested? Did the sheriff or investigators there tell you anything about how that went down and how he was caught? So we were working very closely with the Union County Sheriff. Uh, we had a uh, suspect under surveillance for uh, a number, almost two weeks, where um, the time was made for him to be arrested. Uh, he was taken into custody, taken to the sheriff's office uh, at that point. Some processing was done. Uh, he, it was out without incident. Um, we um, turned over the, the property and his scene and his uh, vehicles over to the Union County Sheriff, and, uh, and th they uh, helped us with that. Um, and it was pretty, without, pretty much without incident. He a was, traffic stop, is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. He was, uh, he was, a, he was a truck driver. Uh, he parked his truck where he normally always does, got out of his truck and was walking away from it when he was taken into custody. Before you do that, can I throw out one other thing I forgot to about the charges? Someone's going to ask, <clears throat> was there a death penalty in Colorado in 1980, and is this case particularly eligible for it? Um, there was a death penalty. It looks different than the death penalty that we have now. Uh, that law was in existence back then, and of course, we're going to um, take... True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed terror takes center stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not 
this one, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.